Well, hello everyone. If we haven't met, I'm Dave. I'm one of the ministers here uh, at Uni Church. Here at Uni Church, what we do every single week is we look at a passage of the Bible, and then one of our pastors or ministers gets up and talks about it. And at the moment, we've just started a brand new series looking at the Gospel of Luke. Luke is a biography written by a man called Luke about Jesus. Um, we're right at the very beginning, Luke chapter 1, and we're going to have a little passage read to us in a little bit. But before we do that, actually, I'm going to tell you uh, a little bit of context about what's happening so far so that you can really grip hold of the Bible reading uh, when Lucy gives it in a little bit. But before we do that, I want to tell you a story that embarrasses me, if that's okay with you. Uh, I'd been dating my wife, Sammy, uh, for a few months, and we decided to go to the beach, to Bondi Beach. Has anyone been to Bondi Beach Here, yes, fantastic. Bondi Beach, I decided to go there um, with her. This was a very bold move on my behalf because I cannot swim. Um, However, in Australia, it is a matter of great shame to not be able to swim. It's a matter of great shame indeed. I'm deeply embarrassed about my lack of um, flotation. However, uh, it's part of what you have to do when you're an Aussie to go to the beach. So we decided we were going to go. It was raging hot and we went. So we get down to the beach, um, we get into the water, and we spend around 15 minutes in there. I had pumped myself up beforehand, and I even got to the part of the water which was like above my nipples, above there. It was a really big day, okay? I didn't go underwater, but I stayed there. Now, all throughout this, I had been pretending that everything was fine. Internally, man, I was peaking. Okay, I was absolutely terrified. However, externally, I thought I was presenting quite the cool and calm exterior. We got out of the water after in 15 minutes, and I'm drying off. And I look at Sammy, and Sammy looks up to me with a look of deep concern in her eyes, and she goes, Dave, are you okay? I said, what do you mean? I'm fine. She goes, I have never seen anyone so terrified, pretending not to be. I said, what do you mean? She goes, it looks like you were at war with the waves. It looked like you were having a fight with them when they were crashing all around you. Next time you're in the beach, I want you to observe the swimmers around you or in the water. There's actually two types of swimmers. There's reactive swimmers and proactive swimmers. Reactive swimmers are people like myself, okay? We feel like every wave that's hitting us is a surprise. You know, like, what are you doing here? How did you get here? Why are you here? Everything is uncomfortable. We're never comfortable with what's happening. We know that we should be able to sort of predict what's going to happen, but we never get out of our sort of comfort. We're always out of our comfort zone. We're We're never happy. Now, proactive swimmers, on the other hand, are completely different to that. Proactive swimmers, as I'm sure most of you guys are, anticipate the wave and do what? They swim with it. You understand that you have no control over the patterns of the ocean. However, you get in tune with the song the ocean is singing and you work with it for your fun and and your own benefit. When it comes to your faith, who you are to God, we have proactive believers, we have reactive believers. A reactive believer is someone whose faith is only as strong as their life is going well. If things are going well, if you're getting the grades that you want, you've got the girl or the guy's attention that you want, if everything's ticking the boxes that you want, then God is good, God is glorious, thank you God. 
But of course, as soon as things fall apart, you fail your exams, you get dumped, things go terribly, well then, God, what are you even doing? Reactive faith, controlled by our circumstances and situations. Of course, there is another type of faith, though, a proactive faith. Proactive faith is a faith, a faith so strong that it actually dictates the health of your circumstances. The understanding of this faith is that God is always good. God is always trustworthy. And that's what trusting God means. Not just trusting that he exists, but believing that he is who he says he is. He does what he says he does. He is someone that you can trust. And so if things go well, praise God, God is good. If things don't go well, it hurts, there's pain, but praise God, God is good. Now, all throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see a range of figures and characters displaying either reactive or proactive type faith. If you know your Bible in the Old Testament, think of Jonah. You think Jonah's a proactive or a reactive kind of guy? Reactive. Things go badly, he gets very, very upset. Now, we see examples in the Old and the New Testament of the Bible all throughout that we had to model ourselves on or flee from. And tonight, we have the great privilege of observing one of the greatest examples of proactive faith, a living, breathing, trusting faith available to us. And tonight, we get to see and meditate and really dwell on not just the person who has this faith, not just what they display, but we get to grasp hold of how this kind of faith this kind of life can be possible for people like you and I. Now tonight, we're looking at one of the most famous women in the Bible and a song that she writes about the God that she loves. The woman is a, a young, teenage, uneducated girl from a country area that no one would have ever heard of besides her and her son, a woman called Mary. Now we're in Luke chapter 1. So this is right at the beginning of the story of Mary. And let me just tell you what's happened up until this point. Many of you will be familiar with this from Christmas, of course. The angel, anyone remember his name? Gabriel, he visits Mary. And I want to make it clear that from the outside, this woman Mary, there's nothing in her life which would draw attention to people on the outside in their culture. She's young, probably a teenager. She's unmarried, engaged. She's probably uneducated. She's working class from a rural area. From the outside, nothing about her would draw the attention of the crowds. But God is not like us. Have a look at, as we're on the screen, you don't have to look in your Bible, it'll be on the screen, chapter 1, verse 30 to 32. Gabriel appears to Mary and says, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Hold on. 1,000 years earlier, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, that's a bit before Jesus in the Bible, the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, there's a prophecy, Isaiah 7, a prophecy about a, a virgin, a virgin woman who would give birth to a son and he would be called Emmanuel. And that's one of the other names Jesus is given and Emmanuel means God with us. So here you have Mary, young, uneducated, rural, engaged, angel, pregnant from God. If possible, and I know this is a stretch, but if possible, let's try, if we can, to grasp hold of what the situation must have been like for this young woman. 
Now, if people get pregnant outside of marriage today, it's really not considered culturally a very, very big deal. But in the first century Middle East, let me tell you, it was an enormous deal. People pregnant outside of wedlock were mocked and belittled and rebuked. A culture where unmarried women had their heads shaven, were pushed into the town square and called whores and harlots. People were even executed for it. The enormity of this personal situation cannot be underestimated. Let me ask you, how would you have responded in that situation? Well, I'm going to invite Lucy up now, and Lucy is going to read to us Mary's response. Mary gets the news, goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who we heard about last week. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. And this is what Mary says. Thanks very much, Lucy. Uh, Tonight's reading is Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 56, and can be found on page 1026 in the Pew Bibles. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, let's pray together that God would grip us through his word. Father, thank you for your word that you are a God who is not silent, not distant, not disinterested, not uncaring, but you speak, you love, you care. Father, all of us have our own stories, our own struggles, our own ups and downs. All of us here are in one way or another distant from you. Lord, there's some here who do not know you. And there's some amongst us who do know you but feel a long way. And we pray that through your spirit, in the power of your spoken word, you would grip us and change us. We know you speak, but Lord, help us to listen. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we get here from Mary? Okay, this here is an incredible character study of three different people. Person number one is Mary. And if you look at verse 46 and verse 47, you get to see two incredible insights about the soul and the spirit of Mary. Have a look at her self-reflection and her reaction. Mary said, in, in the face of this incredible news to this young woman, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. I want you to take note, how does Mary think of herself? With self-pity? How does Mary think of herself with a huge concern about everyone else's thoughts of her reputation? No, no, no. Mary is a spiritual person 
her age, her financial position, her geographic location, her reputation. None of these things are her primary means of self-identification. My soul, my spirit. She's a, a young girl. I want to be like her. A young girl whose spiritual identity transforms her earthly identity. Her spiritual identity is her primary means of identification. She's a God-focused young woman. Yeah, she's a teenager, but God doesn't grade age like we do. Maturity is not about how many years you've been on this earth, and we've got this woman, this young woman here, incredibly spiritually mature. She is not the center of her own satisfaction. Look at her reaction. What does her soul say? My soul glorifies the Lord. Now, glorify is one of those religious words that we can get a little bit, well, we sort of assume, we, we pretend we know what it means a lot. Oh, help me glorify you, Lord. But if we had to articulate and define it, it can be quite difficult. But there's another translation of this exact same word, which some of your other Bibles will have, which I think is more helpful. See, this sentence is often translated as, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. What do we mean by magnify? Well, the American preacher John Piper, a really great preacher, he defines it this way. Listen to this. You can magnify like a telescope or like a microscope. When you magnify with a microscope, you make something tiny look big. You can make a bit of dust look as big as a monster. But when you magnify with a telescope, what are you doing? You will make something unimaginably great look as big as it really is. See, glorifying God, this young girl, glorifying God, magnifying God. She's a, a young woman who has allowed her mind and her heart and her soul to grasp hold of the enormity, the true size and wonder and majesty of God. Have you? Is your thoughts of God constrained to a building like this? Church songs? Your experience with, with church or Christian? That's your idea of God? That's a microscope. Glorify. Magnify. And there's dwelling on God and His magnificence. Verse 47, verse 47. My spirit rejoices. Just back one slide, please. My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Her magnification, her glorification leads to rejoicing. Her focus to God on who He is, on what He has done, on His attributes, on His character, that leads to her joy. Now, that thing, that word joy, is a difficult one for us to understand because we often align joy with an emotion. I remember holding my, my children, I've got five kids, they're not always a joy. What's the opposite of joy? They, but whatever the case, I remember when they're first born, they are a joy. And you feel, well, joy is kind of the same as happiness. But in the Bible, that's not true. When God uses the word rejoice or joy, he's not speaking about a fickle human emotion. Joyfulness, biblical joyfulness, is a setting of the heart. A setting of the heart that demands joy regardless of the circumstance a permanent indwelling and essence that only comes as a result of knowing who God is, of knowing truly in your heart who God is and what he's done, of loving him, of seeing his majesty and gripping hold 
of the reality of God. So you've got these two extremes at work. Are we on the same page? You've got Mary on one, on one hand, the earthly reality of Mary, pariah, pitiless, penniless, pregnant, up the duff. Do you use that expression here? Is that rude? It's not rude in Australia, but whatever. I apologize if it is. Pregnant. Preggers. On the other side, the same tension happening at the exact same time, we have Mary, the spiritual giant. Amen? The spiritual giant. This is a teenage girl with incredible social pressure and anxiety. She should have... But Mary, magnifying and glorifying God, rejoicing in God, these two things seem to contradict, don't they? Because often we are so reactive, we are reactive to the earthly situation that our spiritual life completely disintegrates. When things are good, God is good. When things are bad, God, where are you? We get angry at Him or we do intentional forgetfulness. Have you ever done intentional forgetfulness with God? La, 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 la. Get out. I want what Mary has. Now, if you're a Christian here tonight, and I know not everyone here is a Christian, but if you're a Christian, if Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, do you want what Mary has? Do you want to go to heaven kicking and screaming all the way there, anxious and worried and sweating and feeling up and close and back and forth with God, or do you want what Mary has? The joy, the peace, the praise, the magnification, that's the life I want. So the question is, what has Mary done in order to achieve this joyful interior? What practices has she put into place that I can mimic and copy and therefore copy and therefore attain, not coffee, therefore attain the same levels of blissfulness that have captured her? Isn't that what you want? I have two sisters, both wonderful. One of them has eight children. (whistles) Talk about pregnant, mate. Now, after she finished... Uh, having children, my sister, who I will not name, although she's got eight kids, you could work it out if you know me, but she decided, well, she wanted to go on a diet. And she had been back and forth in diets constantly for a number of years, but none of them had really worked. I know it's not really that common now, but we're talking 10, 20 years ago, diets really involved starving yourself, saying no to food. You just had to say no all the time to food, and that was a very difficult thing to do. She needed to cut out the fatty foods and eat less. And the less you ate, the more weight you would lose, so on and so forth. But it was very hard to maintain that level of sort of self-imposed starvation. And so none of the change ever worked. But after giving birth to her, her youngest child, she went on a different diet. And this diet was one that her personal trainer recommended. And it's called the carnivore diet. It sounds magnificent. Okay. All she would eat was steak. Like, that's it. For breakfast, steak. For lunch, steak. Now, not fatty steak, they cut off the fat, so why bother? But still, she'd, she'd have the steak. Dinner, steak. Now, she also had this like, awful drink that just stunk. Worse than her eight kids' nappies. Stunk. Awful. She had this awful drink that she would drink with it, but with this carnival diet, and she ate steak, ate steak, ate steak, and believe it or not, now, you've got to look this up. Don't just take this from me and say, well, well I'm going to do this. But she lost so much weight. Now, I don't know if the carnival diet is a good diet or not. But what we've discovered in recent years with fitness and dieting and, and all those kinds of things is that a good diet is not about starving yourself. You might lose the fat, but it's not healthy 
weight loss. A good diet, a diet that produces long-lasting change is about cutting out the bad and replacing it with something good. Cutting out the bad and replacing it with something good. So what is the spiritual pathway that Mary has followed? My friends, often when we think about our spiritual growth, we think of some form of spiritual starvation. Well, I need to stop doing this, stop doing that, stop doing this, stop doing that. I can't look at this, I can't go here, I can't do that. Denial, denial, denial. And I want to make it clear that Jesus Christ himself makes it very clear we are to crucify our sinful natures. We are to deny ourselves. If our right hand causes us to sin, what does he say to do? Cut it off. Denial is part of the Christian life, but not only. We are not just to deny ourselves, but we are to also simultaneously be in the process of feasting on God's delights, on filling ourselves, our hearts, our souls, and our minds on the glorious things that God promises us, on feasting of spiritual food, emptying spiritual poison, filling with spiritual power. And as you read on here for the remainder of this beautiful song that Mary writes, it becomes staggeringly clear that it is not Mary who has, who has created this joy within herself. It is not what she has done. She's not praising herself. Look at what I have done. You should worship me. I'm a form of God. She is not saying that. The source of Mary's joy is not Mary, but God. The growth in Mary, the maturity in Mary, is not because she knows herself so well. It's because she is someone who knows God. You see, my friends, this, this poem, this song that she writes, is a character study, not of Mary, but on Mary's creator, on your creator. This is a, a love song but not romance. Don't think Valentine's Day romance. This is a love song about God, about his attributes, about who he is and what he's done. And the promise to you and I, my friends, is very, very clear that the secret to our spiritual fulfillment is not going to be found inside us, but in who God is. The passage isn't about Mary, but about who God is, the very God who made her and knows her and loves her, and the same God who made you and knows you and loves you. And the more you dwell on who God is, the more you dedicate your mind to being renewed, to focusing what you think on and dwell on, meditate on being God, the more you feast on God, the less you are controlled with the up and down circumstances of this crazy life that we all live and the more that your faith dictates your joy. So let's have a look here and see what it is that Mary says about our God. Should we do this? This character study, this incredible picture of the magnificent attributes of our Lord. Have a look at verse 46 to 49. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now, there's a lot of descriptive words in there, but I want you to focus on that last one. Holiness. Mary says God is holy. But what does that word holy mean? It's a bit like glorify. It's one of those religious words. Well, let me tell you what holy means. The word holy means set apart and separate, dedicated. If you think of a war memorial or something like that, it's a separate area, a sacred spot. 
holy, separate, set apart. It's where we get the word holiday from, holy day. You know, isn't that interesting? Holy day. It's separate, set apart, different. God is separate, set apart, different. We get another word in the English language from holy, and that word is whole, complete, whole, perfect. God is holy, holy, complete, set apart, and perfect. My dear friends, I understand that the temptation we have to superimpose ourselves onto our God. We need to flee from that. God is not like us. Thank you. He is not like us. How has God displayed his holiness to Mary? How would you display your great holiness to someone? Would you wear white robes? A lot of gold everywhere, some candles? 48. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. God displays his holiness, his separation, his perfection by exalting the lowly and the humble, by stepping down into the unnoticed and later we see by dethroning the haughty. My friends, take a step back and dwell on what God is truly like. God is not in the least impressed by earthly reputation, by your pride, by your power, by your opulence. He is not impressed by your job. He's not impressed by your bank balance. He's not impressed by any of those things, the greatness of men. His holiness is glorious. It's perfection, sinlessness. It's not just the best we know made better. It's unique and incomprehensible, unattainable. That is our God. One of my favorite authors, a guy called A.W. Tozer, he writes this. Listen, listen to what he says. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bedded. We know nothing of the divine holiness on earth. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, unattainable. The natural mind is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. And God's holiness is dictated throughout the rest of these descriptive terms of him. Look at verse 50. Our God is a holy God. He's mindful of the humble state, but also, verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation, from the beginning of creation to the current second that we live in right now. Our God displays mercy. Well, what is mercy? Mercy is when someone with the ability to give out justice withholds it. Have you experienced God's mercy? There's only one way you have. And that is through repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God has withheld and withheld the justice that we deserve and replaced it with grace, with good things we don't deserve. Mercy is a character attribute of God. God is by nature merciful. It springs out of his goodness. God is not merciful to you because you are so wonderful. Brothers and sisters, please hear me right now. There is just a a chronic self-belief amongst so many of us that we believe we are admirable to God. We believe God loves us because, of course, he loves us. Look at us. You're only deluding one person, and it's yourself. You are not admirable to God's God. God shows mercy out of his goodness. God is holy. He is merciful Verse 49 and 51, for the mighty ones has done, mighty one has done great things for me. He has performed mighty deeds 
with his arm. I wonder if I say to you, mighty, that, that person is mighty, what do you think of? Perhaps you think of a, a bodybuilder, no, a big, fit, strong person, or maybe you think of a, a, a world leader. Maybe you think of a president or a prime minister, maybe you think of a dictator, maybe you think of the weaponry available to kings and presidents. Is that what it means when it says God is mighty? My friends, God is the almighty. Take the universe, this incredible, infinite space in which we live, bigger than our puny minds could ever begin to comprehend. 250 billion known galaxies, most of them bigger than our one, filled with at least 250 billion planets, most of them bigger than ours, filled with more and more stars, most of them bigger than ours. God created it with his word, his word. I want to challenge you to create a a grain of sand right now with your word. The only thing we can create with our words are hatred and division. God has created all things. He is merciful. He is holy. Verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. Our God is sovereign. He does as he pleases, as only he pleases always as he pleases. None can thwart him. None can hinder him. He is supremely in control. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon put God's sovereignty like this. Listen to this. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty under the adverse conditions in the most severe trials. They believe, we believe, that sovereignty has ordained our afflictions. Sovereignty has overruled all of them and sovereignty will sanctify all of us. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation. What that means is that Christian, if you are a Christian, take great comfort in the thought that your God is in control of all things. He is over all things, working in all things for his glory and our good. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things but sent the rich away empty. Our God is generous. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. This, when it talks about the rich here, it's not saying people who are necessarily wealthy but greedy, wealthy people. God gives us great things out of the generosity of his goodness. He loves to give abundantly provisions, relationships, love. Of course, he gave most of all his own son. 54, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Now, you might know nothing about the Bible, but let me tell you, the Bible is not a self-help book for life. Oh, my goodness. It's not a book you pick up and go, right, what do I deal with this situation? Bible roulette. Okay. The Bible is a story of God's faithfulness to unfaithful people. The Old Testament, the bit before Jesus, is a story of the country and the people, the Jewish people in Israel. And that is a story of a group of people saying, no God, no God, no God, no God, no God. Faithlessness, but in the face of unfaithfulness and faithlessness, God's faithfulness. He is a promise maker and promise keeper. Verse 55 tells us that he has always been that way. To Abraham, his descendants forever, just as he promised their ancestors, he is eternal. God has no beginning and no end. 
Put that in your mind for a moment. How big is the universe? Infinite. Where does it start? It doesn't. Where does it end? It doesn't. Do you understand that? If you do, please come and explain it to me. But you live in it. Our God is infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. To God, one day is a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. Time is a human construct. To God, time doesn't exist. God has always been. But my dear friends, I want you to understand one final attribute, the key attribute about our Lord that I want you to dwell on and take away from here tonight. And it's actually one that Mary mentions at the very beginning of her song. Look at verse 47 again. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. You see, the truth is that Mary understands who it is that is inside her belly. She understands that salvation, that is being able to stand before God forgiven for our sin. Being able to stand before God adopted as his child. It can never, ever, ever come about through our own worth and goodness. I will bang on about this forever because it is so crucial. You will never be good enough for God. If God says, why should you get into heaven? If your answer is, because I, you don't get it. You will never be good enough for God. Mary understands this. My spirit rejoices in God's, my God, my Savior, my friends. Why is Mary pregnant? Why has God put her in this position? Look at verse 31 again. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. My dear friends, God has put Mary in this unenviable position for one purpose only. That child inside her stomach was conceived to die. Now, of course, we all know that children die, people die, we will all die, we will eventually die, but this child was born for the express purpose of death. And surely you might think, well, that goes against God being merciful and holy and faithful. And it... No, it is through this that we see the glory of God's holiness. We are rebels against God. Mary is a rebel against God. Mary is a sinner against God, just like you and just like me. She, like we, needs a saviour. And she understands that in the birth of Jesus, God's holiness, his mercy, his generosity, his faithfulness, his power has never been on more display. Why? Because Jesus Christ, around 33 years after this, he will walk to the cross with your sin on his shoulders. He will be nailed to the wooden cross. This child inside her belly, he will be nailed to a cross. And on that cross will take the punishment that you and I deserve from God. He will be crushed by his own father. So what does this mean for us right now? My dear friends, let me ask you again. Do you have a proactive faith or a reactive faith? If you're a Christian here today, are you someone who's fickle, who is easily dismayed and easily angered, easily annoyed and easily frustrated, you easily grumble and easily whinge, guilty. 
Ask my wife, guilty. But I don't want to be that way. Do you? I don't want to be a prisoner of my circumstances, my situation. I want my love for God to override my circumstances and situation. Mary shows us how. Trust God. The more you know God, the more you trust God. How do you know God? My dear friends, you've got a Bible in your pews. That is not a, a good, look, good luck charm. It is not a doorstop. It's not an academic pursuit so you can impress people at Bible study by getting into new bits really quickly. This is how God speaks to you. I mean it. I promise. Be of the Word. Memorize parts of the Bible. Renew your mind daily and hourly as you recite the great truths about God. Focus your heart and your soul and your mind on who God is, not on who you are. When someone cuts you off in traffic, when you trip over the dog, when you fail your exam, when the person you like doesn't like you, and the person you don't like does like you, understand that our God is holy, our God is faithful, our God is kind, our God is generous, our God is sovereign, and he is sovereign over all of it, and he is good regardless of what happens. You can trust him regardless of what happens. Do not be a prisoner of your circumstances. Can I encourage you to join a growth group? Growth groups are weekly Bible study groups who meet around Belfast. There's a bunch of people here who are in them, who love them. They meet and they study the Bible together, share life together, bear burdens together. What a great thing to do. I wouldn't be here today as a Christian without growth groups. Join a growth group. Why not? Why not? What's your reason? I would love to encourage you to do that. Read the word. Prioritize it. How many hours a day do you, do I spend watching Netflix? I will not embarrass myself. Do I spend electronically eavesdropping other people on social media? I will not embarrass myself. My friends, study the word. Join a growth group. Meet up with someone. Memorize the word. If you're not a Christian here today, if you know in, your, in the heart of your hearts that you do not know the Lord your God, he is not your God, you have never turned away from your sin and put your faith in him. Can I encourage you right now that our God is generous, he is faithful, he is kind, he is trustworthy, he has sent his son and killed his son so you may be called his son so your sin can be forgiven. You can become a Christian right now. Right now. And I'd love to encourage you to do that. What I'm going to do now uh, as the band come forward is I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for Christians that we would become people not held prisoner by the word and I'm going to become uh, I'm going to pray for non-Christians that would put our faith in him, that you would put your faith in him. So let's bow our heads and let's pray to God. Father in heaven, thank you for your son Jesus. As we've read, in utero, inside Mary's stomach, but through the great words of your daughter Mary, we read the great truths that you are a God we can trust. And Lord, I pray for us here today who are Christians, who do know you, that we would be men and women who have a, a real, living, breathing, active faith, a faith that withstands, a faith that is strong, a faith, faith that lives, that we would not be prisoners of our circumstances and situations, but rather people who trust you regardless of what's happening. And Lord God, I pray for the men and women here who do not know you, who know in their heart of hearts they do not know you. Lord, I pray for your mercy that through your spirit you would reveal to them the, the, the truth 
of what Jesus has done, his death and his resurrection. Lord, forgive, forgive, forgive. Forgive them, Lord. Let them put their faith in you through the power of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.